We start, though, with the war in Ukraine and the very latest as to what is happening on the streets of that country. some of the sounds on one of the streets near Kiev in Ukraine. Before we get to, to our first guest, I wanted to also play for you this report. Washington Post journalist Sudarsan Raghavan has been in Kiev for the past few days and explains what's happening there right now. I'm in the center of Kiev and today basically the, the streets are pretty much extremely empty. Uh, people are either inside their homes or in uh, or inside uh, subway stations where many people have camped out in uh, in empty uh, subway cars. At the train station, thousands of people are, are trying to leave today. Uh, many of them have arrived with their families, uh, children, uh, elderly, trying to get on a, on, a, on a train. Most of them appear to be going west towards the city of Lviv uh, and, and the Polish border. There's, um, it's, uh, you know, people, there's a sense here that the news is tightening on the city and uh, and many people are, especially after last night, uh, there was a bombardment last night and even throughout the day today, there's been uh, explosions around the city. People are getting extremely worried. There's still people out there trying to stock up. Uh, you know, I, I went to a one, one supermarket today and there's certainly a, a handful of people inside, but not the long lines that we saw uh, yesterday and maybe day before. Uh, people are are, um, you know, you know, they, they have to do what they have to do. Some people are waiting in in gas lines, trying to fill up their uh, their their cars. Others are wait, you know, trying to get bread. Uh, but you know, it's um, look. I mean, it's it's definitely uh, more tense than it was. The feeling is more tense. The city is more tense than it was uh, yesterday and the day before. Uh, people are also extremely concerned, uh, you know, with all the reports coming up. There was a report last night uh, from the, uh, the, uh, the Russians were going to be bombing a, a secret service building, which is in the heart of the city, actually not too far from the hotel where we're at. Um, and, uh, and, and there were other, uh, you know, the mayor himself has said that the, the city is getting increasingly surrounded by, by Russian forces. So all these are playing into people's minds and calculations. And that's why you've, you've seen this, you know, a a huge rush today to get on trains. All right, that is Washington uh, Washington Post reporter Sudarsan Raghaven in Kiev. Let's check in now with Svetlana Matveyenko, assistant professor at the SFU School of Communication. And Svetlana is actually in Ukraine right now, and we spoke to her just a couple of hours ago. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me exactly where you are and what's happening there right now? I'm in a small town in the southwest of Ukraine. The town is called Kamenets-Podilsky. And this is one of uh, just a few regions that are not very much under attack right now. Uh, We we have sirens, so we have constantly this alert when the rockets are flying somewhere in our direction. But our automatic system is kind of working in the way that it's sort of alerts. Uh, many, many kind of towns and cities, and we all uh, hear that. It doesn't mean that the rocket actually flying here. It's probably kind of targeting Kiev or a small 
cities around Kyiv, they are extremely destroyed, actually, at this moment. Here, it's pretty calm, so, but we are still very much alerted, and we have territorial defense uh, operating. We have some cases of sabotage, and we know that anything can happen, so, but everyone is ready. It, it must be, I don't even know what the word is to describe it, but like you say, even though you're in a town where it's not in the middle of the fighting, when you see what's happening in some of the other cities and the casualties and the destruction, it, what is the concern or how concerned are you that, that Russian forces could make their way to where you are? Well, we're terribly concerned, but not just specifically because they could make it here. It's just like at this moment, we are as the country, we are just so united and this pain and this affect and everything that is happening, it kind of like really deeply concerns all of us. So when I see all these images and pictures, when I talk to my friends everywhere, knowing that they're sitting in those basements and and, uh, sometimes for days, it's unbelievably painful and horrifying. So it's a huge trauma that probably will not go away for decades or hundreds of years. I don't know. Uh, It's incredible how one person could really throw everything, like all history, all attempts to work out some kind of relation between our countries. And then he throws his own country under the train forever. It's unbelievable. What are you hearing on the ground as far as, or or when we look at the information that's getting out and what's happening, what are you seeing and hearing as far as there you are in Ukraine, as far as the information that you're able to get, and also seeing how this war is being portrayed to people depending on where you are in other countries and, and depending on what kind of information gets out there? Yeah, it's very important. Uh, and of course, probably the picture is different depending on how well uh, Russian media, such as what Russia Today, for example, such channels that have been working for Western audiences and even, we could say, world audiences for quite a while. So this picture or this vision of what is happening in Ukraine could be different because the way how these media were trying to kind of create the image of Ukraine for a very long time, right? So it was very subtle, very strategic work everywhere, right? So, for example, if you think about Russia today, uh, their strategy, uh, their propaganda strategy is to mix lies and truth, some fair critiques and some completely convoluted, twisted facts. So in every country, for example, uh, people are disappointed or concerned about something. Some have certain criticism about their government or ecological issues or some other things. And Russia today would always find with these matters of concern and produce or reproduce even someone else's criticism or someone else's framework or someone else's ideas on that matter, not because they share them, but because they want to gain the audience. And when they gain the audience, when they get the trust, they can transmit any message they want. And then there was fascist Ukraine, then there was, you know, uh, calling this whole war operation or conflict or something else rather than a full-scale war. Etc. So it's a very, you know, like this, this work has been done for 
for several decades, probably we could say from 2004 or something like that, because that's when Ukraine had this orange revolution and Putin really hoped to have Yanukovych, that his guy, installed as the president of Ukraine. And Ukraine didn't want him and didn't agree with that decision coming from Russia. And from that time on, Russia really changed with this informational politics towards Ukraine, trying to paint a particular picture everywhere in the world just through their channel. So that's kind of, I see the situation. And that's why in the context of the long strategy, there were also a lot of tactical measures Right, So kind of some little lies, little facts that already perceived very easily by different audiences in different countries who already trusted particular media. What sense do you get from people there on the ground, citizens in Ukraine, about the response of other countries, the response of the West to this, whether it was enough or is enough or not enough? Do you get a sense of that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult question, actually, because very difficult to measure and very difficult to understand what's enough. We're very grateful for this incredible global support, and, for those, and especially to those brave people in Russia who, despite all this police regime, go on the street and trying to protest. Um, but at the same time, uh, sometimes it feels that Nobody even cares about these sanctions, right? Mm-hmm. So it seems like this uh, person, Russian president, completely lost his mind. And it's about some kind of uncontrollable hatred, right? So that even such severe measures as we see now with sanctions, right? So it seems like they are probably not working at this moment. We don't know, right? So maybe we'll see in several days because there is already another day for negotiations, so it seems like the first round went anywhere, right? So, I mean, they couldn't obviously agree on on, uh, Russian conditions, but we'll see. Maybe now, seven days into the war, and when Russia already suffers this horrible uh, impact, right? So we'll see, maybe that will change something. So hard to say, yeah. So it does feel like we, I mean, nobody has an idea now (laughs) in in a certain way, right? So what could be that decision or that sanction that finally would be so impactful that would stop it? We'll see. And Svetlana, I just wanted to ask you as well, it's... uh uh, so interesting that you're able to give us that perspective from from being on the ground, from being where you are in mm-hmm. Ukraine. We've been watching, of course, the the Ukrainian people uh, picking up and fighting back. And in some cases, I think, at least in the very beginning, uh, pleasantly surprising at the amount of force and the way they were able to defend Ukraine. But what mm-hmm. about when we talk about things like cyber warfare and other measures that Russia, Russia might take or might be planning in this war? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, when I speak about cyber warfare, I know that usually um, it's understood as uh, the amount of uh, cyber attacks or digital propaganda, etc. In the way how I understand cyber war, it's actually a nexus of the kinetic action and the communication. 
So it would uh, this physical aspect of Cyber War is very important, right? Because it's all about uh, a user and the soldier who's also a user and also kind of wrapped into certain information and very easily impacted by certain messages, right? But of course, it's also about DDoS attacks. It's uh, about uh, what we are seeing now, for example, in my town. So from yesterday, yesterday and today, and we cannot understand why, but we are completely losing our home internet, right? So, oh. and what happened? What with with us here, with my my neighbors and etc. So, we are losing home internet, and our local telegram channel informed already us. So, what I'm following is a local telegram channel. We have two very good, very informative telegram channels that actually alert us about the uh, sirens. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the Bank of Canada has hiked the key interest rate in an effort to take some steam out of the economy to tamp down on surging inflation. Some, though, are warning that if you think high prices are something that are going to come and go, well, they might be sticking around for months to come. So what exactly does this raising of the rate mean? Joining us is Rob Levy, CKNW business analyst. Hey, Rob. Hey, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Oh, not not too bad for a Wednesday. <laughs> well, that is good. Uh, not a huge surprise that we saw the Bank of Canada raise the key interest rate. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I remember when we talked at the last rate announcement back in January, and it was almost the potential that it was a missed opportunity for the Bank of Canada. But they justified it today by saying there was so much uncertainty in January with the wave of Omicron that we've now sort of put this behind us. And that's given them, you know, a little more satisfaction to proceed with with hiking interest rates here. So they did it. But, you know, the the big thing, uh, the, the elephant or the bear in the room is how much the world's changed in the last two weeks here. So everything sort of tapered back. They were going to hike rates going crazy in, into the next year. You know, some as much as forecasting as much as seven uh, rate hikes within the next 12 months. But those expectations now, given what we're seeing in the world, have been pared back. Uh, right, because when you talk about the uncertainty over uh, Omicron and the uncertainty over COVID, certainly uh, it, it appears that that has eased somewhat. But uh, in the meantime, we have uh, a war going on on the ground in Ukraine. And I would imagine uh, some of the uncertainty over that is also playing into this. It, it is. And it, it's notable to say that the, the biggest miss over the last two years and through this pandemic was people's expectations of inflation. And, and it wasn't by any fault or anybody notably being wrong in hindsight. It's just the fact of how this world's evolved and how unpredictable I think things have gotten. And, and, and even when we're at a point now where we're in January, February saying, OK, this is the peak of inflation. We have a scenario playing out like we're seeing now where Russia goes into Ukraine and everybody is starting to shun Russia in different ways. You know, we've seen these harsh sanctions that have gone into place. But even before we've talked about, you know, further sanctioning Russian commodities, which hasn't yet happened, we're hearing stories through the news like banks not extending letters of credit to traders that buy Russian oil. So it's 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 almost in effect. You don't need those sanctions because we're already hearing stories about Russia's inability to get their commodities to market. And we see the reaction today. Oil's $110 a barrel. So you know, that just means there's a further threat of inflation through energy prices, but then it translates to other goods, you know, hits things in supply chains and means higher prices for the consumer. Uh, so, you know, when does this inflation end and is there inflation 
problem in Canada, th that's a pretty big risk for these markets and for individuals and consumers and households right now. Uh, is anything, do you think, going to be not subjected to this? When you talk about uh, inflation, I mean, people will see it at the gas pumps. People see this at the grocery store. People are the things that are costing more. Is there anything that's immune to this? <laughs> it's almost hard to say at this point because the reason the Bank of Canada and economists look at what they call core inflation, which is almost excluding some of those volatile energy impacted items like what we pay at the gas station is because we see the impact of energy prices and everything we consume. So it really is a big one. And until the world figures out a solution, what it looks like almost post-Russian oil if we're going to go down that route. And, you know, who knows? Because everybody's, you know, forecasting and prognosticating in these kind of days where the story changes so much on a daily basis. But Russia brings about 8 million barrels of oil to market a day in a world that consumes 100 million barrels of oil a day. So it's it's a huge number. And, and you know, just looking at the oil market alone shows how crazy these markets are and, and what they're trying to, you know, move past right now. And even looking at just if you were only looking at the United States and the United States dependency on Russian oil, wouldn't that be a huge shift? Or if we were to see sanctions continue and to see a move to move away from that dependence, I mean, it's not something that could happen overnight. No, absolutely not. The president CEO of one of the biggest um, uh, shale oil drillers in the U.S. made the remarks today. You know, we talk about U.S. energy independence and relying more on our domestic production. It's it's not simply fl flicking a switch, especially what these energy companies are going through right now. Uh, but in the U.S., Canada, it's been a very common theme out of the pandemic, struggling to find labor and, and employees. And it, it's no different in the U.S. So you want to bring oil online, but you need people to do that. And it's not necessarily that's the case. So it's, it's the challenge there. In addition to that, these are companies right now where uh, energy companies around the world have been looked at very harshly from institutional investors and people looking at maybe the idea of uh, environmental and social governance and, you know, looking heavily, you know, about financing and investing in future production, because is that necessarily in line with people's green agenda and shareholders want money out of oil companies right now. So it's held back a lot of production. So it, it, that's the challenge, especially in this market. And it, it's one that's, I mean, it, it's starting some interesting debate, I think is a nice way to put it, because it's very political with people with, you know, green ambitions versus practicality versus people who are just bullish on oil. Uh, you know, where, do, where does Western economies invest in energy going forward, especially what's happened over the last two weeks? Uh, we also heard uh, from one of the chief or the chief economist at the TD Bank saying that the interest rate hike today won't have an immediate impact when it comes to inflation figures. So, so how long into the future or how how many days or weeks do you think until we actually do see as consumers, we do see those bigger, or those higher prices? Oh, I, I think they're here for a little while longer because I think the point that he's making is the Bank of Canada is essentially matching expectations right now and sort of staying in line with the market. If they were to get aggressive, and I don't know if they're in a place where they want to do that just yet, that's when you start to see some downward pressure on inflation. But even when this is all sort of said and done, forecast for inflation, you know, upwards around 5% this year and then settling around 3% you know, next year, that, that's still pretty significant inflation for a lot of Canadian households, given, you know, for the 30 years prior, we were talking about inflation and in, in and under 2%. Uh, so even when they start to think that inflation is going to settle down a little bit, it's still going to be higher than what most Canadians have been used to. 
uh, for the past couple decades. And one other point, uh, the bank, uh, uh, in response to the, the interest rates, uh, the RBC raised the prime lending, its prime lending rate, I think it was to 2.7%, up from 2.45. What do you think as far, what kind of an impact does this have on the housing market? It, it, it's going to start to slow down demand a little bit, but this is why we saw such a spring rush right now, too. It, it, the, the stories out of the housing market, it's it just absolutely crazy across Canada, and it's because interest rates have been so cheap. And then, you know, what they did in January by not raising rates, a lot of people who talk about housing in Canada said that was a big mistake by the Bank of Canada because it was their chance to raise rates, and all they've done is created a flurry of buyers who, who came into this market. So, I mean, these gradual quarter pay, point hikes, it's going to slow things down on the margin, but but it's not going to kill what's already a pretty strong and has been resilient Canadian housing market. It's going to be another factor, especially, too, because it, we're just talking about the Bank of Canada four or five hikes this year. It's no longer that six, seven hikes and, and getting back above two or near two percent. All right. Rob, thank you so much. Always great to talk to you about these issues. Thanks so much for joining the show. Nice to be with you. Nice chatting, Jill. Well, some big news when it comes to sun destinations and travel. It was announced earlier today. The WestJet Group is acquiring Sunwing Vacations and Sunwing Airlines. But what does that mean for the traveling public, especially those who are planning trips to those sun destinations? Let's check in with Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon to you. Thanks so much, Jill. Yeah, this was very big news. Um, It had been anticipated that we would see some mergers in this space just because the the industry has been just hit so hard. And it's, you know, a long recovery um, from where we were at the beginning of the pandemic. So just to put this into perspective, the WestJet Group is buying Sunwing uh, Vacations and Sunwing Airlines. Now, WestJet itself has its own uh, tour operator division, and that's what we call Sunwing, a tour operator. They basically go to all of the popular destinations that Canadians know and love in the States, Caribbean, Mexico, Central America. And WestJet Vacations also does that using its own airline and as well the subsidiary that they have, Swoop. And they do a lot of those same destinations. So I I don't like to see a a major company that does package vacations to these popular destinations leave the marketplace. I mean, less competition always. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that that does mean higher prices for consumers in the end. Now, you might remember, Jill, that there was talk uh, maybe 18 months ago or so about Transat merging with Air Canada and Transat has actually not been servicing the West. There's been no flights out of YVR or any of the smaller airports that they used to service and going to the hotspots. So they're already not in the marketplace. So it's going to be very interesting to watch. I think that the the new group under the WestJet group with um, the CEO of Sunwing, Stephen Hunter at the helm, is going to do very well. They will add capacity. Um, They have said that they're not going to and lose, there will be no job losses in this. And I think that they will be a, a, a real powerhouse as far as I'm concerned in that leisure space for holiday uh, vacations. 
But so when WestJet says that this is going to be delivering greater value for Canadians, I, people might look at that and think, oh, does that mean uh, airfares that are less expensive? And it sounds like that might not necessarily be the case. Well, this is my thought. You know what? They're going to have a lot more buying power to those sun destinations with the hotels and the transfer companies that they bundle with their air. Um, but at the end of the day, with less competition, maybe does that mean more profit for them? Because of their buying power. We'll have to see how that relates to package pricings for consumers, but I don't see it coming down. Hmm. Do you, do you think it'll have any impact then on on other flights, whether if it's if you're taking an Air Canada flight to a sun destination or even, I, I guess not sun destinations, but if you're getting on, is it Flare, some of the, the other low-cost carriers? And we'll have to see about that. This is really in the space of that hot spot getaways to, you know, the South, really, is what we're, we're talking about. And we would, uh, I'm really anxious to see what it does, because this will probably take about a year to actually go through. They do say that they have to go through some sort of regulatory approvals. Um, but they also go on in some of the press releases that I've been reading that they had the government's a blessing on this and help with this um, just because of the situation with the pandemic and how it's impacted travel. So I don't see there be a stumbling block. I do think this will actually go through and with, you know, within the next year, we'll, they have said that we'll have two different brands side by side, Sunwing and WestJet Vacations. I've often seen that in the past and them actually eventually just roll into one. So um, it'll be interesting to see how Air Canada Vacations and some of the other airlines that do package trips, you know, deal with the pricing because they're all going, all going to want market share. Right. Because I thought also that Air Transat had some kind of working relationship with WestJet, but or, or perhaps that was before WestJet was purchased uh, by, was it Ani or the company that purchased WestJet? Yeah, that was a long, uh, a long while ago. So, and, and it's just it was so disappointing that Air Transat pulled out of the West. They really have just focused on their, their flights out of Montreal and Toronto. So anyone wanting to take those packages, and there are some really great ones, especially to Europe. Uh, in the summer months, they, they fly into all of the, hot, uh, the really popular Europe destinations but we from Vancouver have to take the connecting flights through Toronto or Montreal and a lot of people want to avoid that they'll just go on a flight that is with a mainstream carrier that gets them to their destination non-stop so uh, the landscape is certainly changing with respect to travel and the travel industry here in Canada we knew it had to happen um, it's been through the absolute ringer with this pandemic. And, you know, I think that for them, it's going to be strength in numbers. And I think there's no question that they will be a powerhouse uh, with the two of them together. Hmm. And do you see, uh, are you seeing people then getting back in? I know we talked about this last time you were on the show as far as people getting back into travel, uh, hoping, I think, that uh, the requirements, the testing that is still in place will be dropped at some point. But are you seeing an uptick in bookings? We're seeing an uptick in bookings, but you know what? The testing is still a noose around a lot of people's neck. They're just not willing to take the risk of their trip because of the test. They're so anxious that they might have to have it unnecessarily extended because of these tests. So I think that uh, I'm, I'm quite hopeful. I actually spoke this morning uh, at a, a press conference with Bridget Anderson, who's the president and CEO of uh, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, uh, also was the head of um, the Indigenous uh, travel 
I think, association in Canada, and Walt Judas, who's the head of um, BC Tourism, and, and just all really hoping, asking the federal government to drop these tests. You know, this is the time where people are trying to make their decisions for for not just traveling outside of Canada, but also coming into Canada. And with these tests, they're going to go to other parts of the world that these tests aren't required. And if you look to places that are popular, like the UK, um, Germany, Italy, France, Denmark, Greece, they have all dropped testing and they're focusing back on vaccination status of the the people wanting to visit their their countries. I really hope that Canada gets there. And I know there's a lot of talk, well, maybe we will when the U.S. drops the, the antigen test to go, go there. But the reality is that I'm really hoping that Canada will take a leadership stance on this and drop it. Especially since there really isn't, when you look at the numbers of infection rates and you look at how travel is part of that, it's not as though we can look at travel and pinpoint it and say, oh, this is a problem, this is where we're seeing transmission, and this is an issue. I mean, in the beginning, yeah, when we didn't know what was going on, we didn't know exactly what we were dealing with, but it seems like uh, travel has proven that it is safe, that there are rules in place, and that testing, it's not, it doesn't seem, and that's why I think we've seen these other countries drop the testing requirements is that they're really not necessary. Yeah, you know, the with vaccination status um, and the available science, they've all changed over, over, and I think that the rest of the world is coming to terms with the fact that we're going to have to live with COVID for months and years to come, but our federal government is really clinging to that antiquated um, restriction to contain a virus that, as you said, it's already spreading in our communities, so um, it's absolutely handcuffing the, the travel industry. There's no way that uh, the industry can recover, and I think Canadians are ready to travel. There's no doubt in my mind that the industry here is ready to safely welcome international travelers, but I think there needs to be decisive action now by the federal government by dropping the, the any testing requirements to save our summer season. Like, it's, it's now because this is when, and I think we're also losing out um, big big numbers uh, of tourism dollars because a lot of businesses are looking to other jurisdictions while we have these testing requirements in place to put you know, their conferences, and, and we're missing all of that right now. And I know we've kind of gone off on a different subject here. Sorry. Or a different, different, I'm no, sorry. no, no, no. I'm, I'm glad that you're here to answer the questions. But it, it came in up. People were talking as well about the cruise line industry. I don't know if it came up at the roundtable this did, morning. Yeah. Because that's one with a lot of questions, too. And again, the potential of losing a lot of business. Yeah, and so the, the federal government has addressed the fact that you have to be fully vaccinated to go on board a ship, and that's fine. But um, for Canadians, most people know that you can't even get on a plane unless you're vaccinated. So I think um, Canadians are okay with that. The, the problem is, is that a lot of these people on the ships that are especially going up to Alaska, they are Americans, and um, the that might be a stumbling block. And there is already a bill tr- trying to be passed to bypass BC again for another cruise ship season. Um, but I do hope that what we are also hoping for is that right now there's a level four advisory by our federal government to tell Canadians to avoid all cruising. However, out of in the same breath, where the Canadian government is allowing cruise ships into our marketplace, um, just saying, you know, Canadians, though, you really shouldn't go on it. Well, hmm. Um, I'm hoping that that will be dropped and dropped very soon because there's a lot of Canadians that are really eager to go on board those cruise ships. They're coming into the final payment. Those ships are going to be in the water come April. That's not months. That's weeks away, Um, and it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed soon.
All right. Claire Newell, always great to, to chat with you about travel issues and travel stories. Thank you so much, and we will Thanks, talk to you Jill. again soon. Okay, well, you got my vent today. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Thanks, Jill. We've been talking a bit about gas prices. Metro Vancouver currently has the highest gas prices in North America. Those prices expected to keep on rising. What does that mean then for the future of gas prices in Metro Vancouver and the price of other things as well? The trickle-down effect we often see when the price of fuel rises. Are we going to see the price of gas go north of $2 a litre? And if so, how much? Well, joining me to talk more about this is Werner Antweiler, an associate professor at the UBC Souter School of Business. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure talking to you, Jill. Let's talk about gas prices, because I know even though we are used to spending or paying some of the highest prices in North America here in Metro Vancouver, up at around the $1.87 a litre is still very shocking to a lot of people. Is it the war in Ukraine that is the biggest factor in this or how much of a factor is that? Yeah, the situation in Ukraine, of course, is the main driver of uh all prices reaching levels we haven't seen since 2014. Uh, right now, I'm looking on my screen. It's uh, trading at $111 uh, a barrel, and this is a level that has even risen from $90 just uh, uh, two weeks ago. So we are all feeling the effect of uh, the war uh, that uh, Russia has unleashed against Ukraine, and um, the, the prices could even rise further. So we are in a situation where prices are very likely going to top $2 a liter in Canada. And again, based mainly on what we're seeing with this conflict, or are there other factors that are feeding into this as well? Uh, this is a major factor simply because um, if Russian supplies are missing in international markets uh, that are quite significant in volume, then the only way uh, the market can adjust is to uh, raise prices so additional supplies from all around the world is coming online. We see that uh, other major suppliers like Saudi Arabia uh, are uh, very likely going to, to increase production. We see production going up here in North America as well. Uh, so the markets are reacting, but to react, they need to have the prices to incentivize this additional production. So prices will very likely stay high uh, for, for this year. And um, so we can uh, expect that uh, all prices could uh, rise uh, from the current 110 even to $120 a barrel. So uh, that means uh, prices would get up another uh, 10 cents a liter here in Canada. Hmm. And so when people are talking about that $2 a litre and that uh, we're likely going to see that soon, do we know how high it could go? I know that's a little bit of trying to predict what's happening, but do we have an idea on on how high things could get? Yes, uh, I think uh, we have some very good estimates for that because we can see what additional supply could come online. There is some hope that uh, if a settlement is reached between the United States and Iran regarding the, uh, the, uh, the nuclear deal, uh, that we could see some Iranian capacity coming on, and that again would also help uh, alleviate some further price increases. But uh, most experts think that uh, prices will stay in that $100 to $120 range, and um, that will get passed on very soon to, to uh, motorists here in Canada. Um, and for every uh, $1 increase that we see in the, the price of uh, crude oil, we can see um, prices at the pump going up by 0.8 cents a litre. So um, basically, uh, if, you, if you're seeing this $20 uh, increase, uh, we should see a $0.16 cent per litre increase at the end of the day here for, for motorists. 
Uh, is there anything you think that governments can do as far as we are still going to have a, an increase in the carbon tax, which is coming on the 1st of April? Are there things that governments can do to help with these prices and the rising prices? No, and in fact, they shouldn't. I think it's important to pass on these prices to consumers so that we actually can also modify our behavior, which is consume less gasoline uh, and, and maybe uh, relieve uh, the, the problem through that channel by lowering demand. Uh, if you are not doing that, um, then basically uh, we, uh, uh, we we keep up the pressure on on the demand side on global markets. So it's essentially everybody has to do their bit, and that means uh, when we have a shortage of supply, we need to pass on uh, that effect to the consumer so we can actually change our our behavior accordingly. Of course, uh, the the big problem is uh, that uh, some people really depend on on getting to work, uh, and so commuters and others uh, uh, who uh, really rely on driving. Uh, and um, are maybe not very affluent, uh, they need some relief. And the, the way to do that is not through the price system, but on the income side. And that means uh, if there are adjustments that need to be made, uh, that can be made uh, through the tax system at other places that are more effective uh, at accomplishing that. But when it comes to uh, um, making sure that market supply and market demand meet, we need to let the price system do its magic. What about our uh, dependence, though, on international markets? And when we look at what we have as far as oil and gas production in Canada, uh, certainly there is always uh, a fair amount of opposition when talking about building pipelines or increasing pipeline capacity. But do we need to relook at our relationship there and how much we depend on those international markets? Well, um when it comes to uh, oil and gas markets, they are, of course, international, and uh, very few countries actually have uh, self-sufficiency. Uh, and even though we have uh, significant production capacity in Canada and we are a net exporter, uh, we also see we are dependent on international prices, uh, and that is what's driving investments. So in the short term, uh, we can utilize existing capacity, and that is exactly what's happening already. Uh, all the uh, producers are looking at how they can increase their capacity utilization. That's a short-term adjustment. In the long term, we're looking at investments. And here uh, we are also uh, facing the reality of climate change in that uh, we actually don't want to see uh, much further investment in uh, fossil fuel production. Uh, for, for that reason, um, uh, also, many oil companies are not looking towards uh, oil production, uh, but are already pivoting away from this and looking at uh, investing in alternative energy sources. And I think that is a trend that we will see playing out. If oil prices are high, we're going to be looking at alternatives that are cheaper. And uh, for motorists, the most important alternative is to look at electric cars, because for every kilometer that you're driving, uh, you only pay about uh, 25% uh, of electricity than what you would pay in uh, terms of gasoline costs. So what we will be seeing is an acceleration of the move away from, from driving this uh, gasoline. Right. And, and something, though, that seems a little bit more long term. It's not as though if somebody, like you said, there are people who are very dependent on their vehicles. They're dependent on driving, whether it's for work or for whatever reason. And if you're not in a position to make that switch to an electric vehicle, you're kind of stuck with this right now and stuck having to pay these huge prices at the pump. Yeah, the only other opportunities are to look at public uh, transit where it's possible to make that switch, uh, looking at, uh, of course, also driving a more fuel-efficient car uh, and um, using um, fewer discretionary uh, drives if possible. So uh, basically people will adjust to economizing on their uh, activities uh, where they can. But, uh, of course, uh, there are always a number of people who really rely on commuting to work a long distance and for whom uh, they will feel the pinch at the pump. 
And uh, but again, uh, the where governments can intervene here is essentially through the tax system on the income side, uh, not on the uh, interfering in the in the uh, the markets. All right, Professor Antweiler, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us today and for talking more about this. Appreciate your time. It's good talking to you. Thank you. Well, the Surrey Board of Trade is joining the calls for an end to restrictions when it comes to travel and dealing with fully vaccinated travelers, calling for the federal government to end the testing and restrictions that are still in place. And joining me on the line to talk more about this is Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me. What exactly is the Surrey Board of Trade calling for? We wrote a letter and we're joining the call with other national business leaders uh, to ask the Minister of Health for Canada to end restrictions for fully vaccinated travelers. There's four pieces to that. Remove pre-departure testing entirely for fully vaccinated travelers on or before April 1st. Number two, remove the $5,000 fine If someone is tested positive in the last 10 days, they cross the land border into Surrey, for example, they may be subject to a $5,000 fine. Number three, remove COVID-19 testing at the border. And four, remove the confusion around the rules. Uh, There's so much confusion, which is compromising our travel and hospitality industry. And when you talk about the writing the letter and joining the call, are there other boards of trades or other organizations that are with you on this or that are calling for the same thing? The Canadian Chamber of Commerce, like our head office uh, in Ottawa and Toronto, they are calling for the same. I know different uh, Canadian and provincial tourism agencies uh, are also doing the same. And uh, I'm sure other chambers of commerce, and boards of trades across the country uh, are calling for similar messaging to the federal government to remove these restrictions. How are these restrictions having a negative impact on Surrey? Well, first of all, it must be recognized that Surrey is a border city. Uh, We have a significant economic reliance, whether it's personal or families on both sides of the border, or, or people who are doing business on both sides of the border. Uh, so moving across that border without restrictions now, uh, knowing what the health and science is, is absolutely paramount uh, to moving towards economic recovery. Uh, the tourism industry, related industry sectors uh, that rely on the movement of people across that border or um, through airports, uh, Etc. They're, they're one of the hardest hit sectors in the pandemic, and they're being compromised by confusing rules that simply do not make sense. And what about when we talk about things like conferences? And uh, we've talked a bit about how in Vancouver and other places, obviously there aren't being uh, big conferences aren't being planned because of those rules and the uncertainty around the rules. I would imagine in Surrey, that's also an issue, whether it's conferences or hotel stays. It is uh, very similar in Surrey. We don't have as many hotels as uh, downtown Vancouver, certainly. Uh, but, uh, you know, what is prominent in Surrey is sports tourism. And so the ability of uh, bringing in those sporting conventions, 
before the pandemic uh, was very strong and our ability to do so uh, is challenging right now, um, certainly on both sides of the border. And when you talk about removing the confusion, I think even uh, when you went down that list, uh, there was some too. I was talking to people the other day that were, were traveling, planning to travel, and they had thought as a contingency plan, if they happened to test positive and couldn't fly home, uh, maybe that they could cross over, they could, they could drive over the border and quarantine. But there is a lot of confusion as to the fines and whether or not somebody is susceptible to, to being fined. How much is that confusion, do you think, having an impact? Well, it's impactful on on a couple of pieces. Number one is uh, if you're doing business across that border and uh, you don't know if uh, you have to pay a fine if uh, you test positive um, or if um, you have to quarantine and self-isolate, you have to remain in the United States, uh, you have to pay that extra cost. There's so much stress. Uh, behind these decisions, uh, just to travel or or to even do business or to visit your family members. Um, I think right now, as more people, more and more and more people are getting vaccinated, uh, there has to be an incentive uh, to open that border, to be able to travel. Um, Certainly, we see other parts of the world uh, doing this, and uh, I think we need to follow suit. And when you mention other parts of the world, too, we've talked about this as well, that the UK, uh, other countries, they've removed their testing requirements. They're really just focusing now on vaccinations. Does Canada, uh, not not only when we're talking about people and their personal travel, but are we falling behind when it comes to uh, appealing to or, or having those business travelers? Well, I wouldn't say we're falling behind. I think Canada has been um, one of the most cautious countries in the G7 uh, within uh, the world. And um, But I think, you know, now is the time. Um, we're past that Omicron wave, uh, that variant. I, I think now is the time to really catch up uh, with these other countries, such as the UK, Switzerland, uh, and Denmark. And uh, we have to learn to live uh, with the virus. Uh, The virus is not going away. There's going to be other variants, but we can't stop the economy either. And when you talk about that as well, that the fact that that pre-departure testing, as an example, is something that's not rooted in science, that we know that travel is not riskier than other domestic activities. Would you extend the call then and also be calling for BC to at least have a plan or a date or, or some guidance as to when the vaccination passports for going to restaurants, for going to places like that would be dropped? Well, we know that BC is going to announce some removal of restrictions on March 14th. Uh, Those pieces around mask mandates and vaccination passports, uh, they are something that we support uh, just to make sure that everyone is comfortable uh, in a conference room environment where they're returning to events or they're returning to the office. Uh, Everyone is at a different place. uh, And BC In comparison to other provinces, we have fared better in how we have handled this pandemic. And uh, the health and science and the rules, uh, they have worked. Uh, But yes, there does need to be a pathway ultimately uh, towards those uh, restrictions being removed. And 
And I, I think we're going to hear that uh, as we move through the month, the, the month forthcoming. And when would you like to see, when we talk about this call for the travel restrictions to be lifted, when would you like to see that done? Well, we know April 1st is the deadline for, you know, the, the existing travel rules uh, to be reviewed or to be reannounced or whatever it may be by the federal government. Uh, but um, it would be ideal for this to be done before spring break. Uh, you know, we have so many families that have been uh, starving uh, to be able to travel to visit their family, and spring break is upon us very soon, starting March 14th. And uh, it's unfortunate that the tourism and the hospitality industry is going to be compromised again with spring break travel, uh, not being able to um, allow for these restrictions to be removed. All right. Anita Huberman, thanks so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Uh, Thanks so much for your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. You take care.